Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Before we begin today, can I share with you that June is our fiscal year end? This month, we're striving to finish well and move into the next ministry year prepared to embrace new opportunity for Bible teaching. Being involved in a ministry whose primary goal is to effectively teach the Bible is a great privilege. And this mission continues only as those who share our heart for the gospel continue to offer their encouragement and support. Our fiscal year-end goal is to raise $300,000 by the end of June. Realizing this goal will allow us to continue to sustain and grow the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Would you call today with your gift? Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. This week, we're going to re-air a popular series by Dr. Newfeld called The Gospel Alternative to the Cultures of Men. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapters 5 to 7 as Dr. Newfeld brings us an introduction to 1 Corinthians. I think we all know that being a Christian puts one in conflict with a culture in which we're living. In some places in the world, a Christian is always in a direct, full battle with a culture in which they live. This may be because the culture demands either official state-sanctioned atheism, or it may mandate a religion that is at odds with the Christian faith. But in many other places, the battle is much more subtle. So before I get any further on into the series, let me introduce what I'm going to be talking about. We're going to be studying 1 Corinthians 5 to 7, and I'll be calling this the gospel alternative to the cultures in which we live. By that, I mean that when we study 1 Corinthians 5 to 7, we will encounter everything from how to handle our sexuality to how to handle wrongs done against us to principles of Christian marriage and singleness. Now, these are areas in which we must purposely become less like our culture and more like citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, let's step back from this matter and ask two important questions. First, what is culture? And second, why do all Christians have an uneasy relationship to culture? Let's start with the first. What is culture? It's an interesting term. You know, often when we think of all the things that we call cultural events, we mean everything from live theater to music festivals to even artistic events. We mean some kind of an expression that defines who we really are as a people. So what is culture? Well, Robert Dugan has written, it is the ways of thinking, living, and behaving that define a people and underlie its achievements. It's a collective mind. It's a sense of right and wrong, the way it perceives reality and its definition of self. You know, in a way, a culture is all those things that a group of people simply take for granted and hardly ever even think about. A culture is the reflection of what a group of people deeply believe. Let me give you an example. Let's assume your neighbor told you that he saw a ghost walking down the street last night. See, what would you think? Most North Americans would not believe that person and might even think that person has mental health issues. You might try to be polite as your neighbor tells you these things, but as you walk away, you'd say to yourself, you know, I think he's lost it. I think he needs medical help. But there are cultures in the world where the person who says he's seen a ghost would be taken very seriously. 
And this event might be an omen or something like that. See, why in two different places are these events treated so differently? And the answer has to do with a collective sense of what a whole group of people deeply believes about the world. And to a large degree, the assumptions about reality are not even evaluated. The entire culture teaches everyone the same viewpoint from the cradle to the grave, so that our assumptions are not even questioned. Now, let me try a different scenario. Let's now assume your next-door neighbor tells you that if you should happen to notice a different car in his driveway, don't worry, his girlfriend has just moved in with him. See, in some cultures, that would be normal, like ours. And in another, that would be a scandal and an immoral thing. Now, why is that? Because culture not only teaches us what is believable and what is not, it teaches us what's right and what's wrong and what's admirable and what's disgraceful. And here's something else that culture does. It has ways of punishing those who disagree, whether through formal education or in religious institutions or by government laws, all cultures, there are no exceptions to this. All cultures find ways of making life difficult for those who will not believe or will not do what that culture expects. Now, for Christians, this is always uncomfortable. See, on the one hand, the Bible teaches us to pray for our government and to obey all laws that we can obey with a good conscience. But on the other hand, there are so many things that when we become biblical, we find ourselves bumping into these things. Our culture takes consumerism for granted, and the life of God takes sacrificial giving for granted. Our culture assumes that only adultery is wrong and every other form of consensual sexual encounter, well, that's just fine. The life of God takes monogamy and heterosexual marriage for granted. Our culture assumes we must fight for our rights. The life of God assumes we must fight not for ourselves, but for the advancement of the kingdom. Well, I could go on and on, but you get the point. And it's precisely at this point that I want to take us to 1 Corinthians chapters 5 to 7. You know, other parts of this book deals with internal disputes and then again how to judge between that which is required and that which a believer has freedom to decide. And then there are matters about spiritual gifts and then 1 Corinthians will speak about the resurrection from the dead and so forth. But in chapters 5 to 7, we find matters about which a local church and individual Christians must learn to adjust their lifestyle from the one they took for granted in their culture to the one that the Christian faith now demands of them. What is required is a change in the way that we live. So let's try to understand the book of 1 Corinthians. It was most likely in the spring of AD 49 that Paul set out on his second missionary journey. A very short time before, Christian leaders had met in Jerusalem and had given a big two thumbs up to the concept of Gentile evangelism. Churches would be established in a world that had no background in biblical history. Pagan Gentile cities awaited the first ever Christian missionaries. These cities of the Roman Empire were replete with pagan temples and bizarre sexual practices, an imperial cult of emperor worship, and a complete ignorance of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It seemed like an impossible task. It's hard to know where to even begin. It was now about two years since Paul had been on his first missionary journey. 
Back then, he had established churches in Pamphylia, Galatia, Pisidia, cities that, while predominantly Gentile, still had a sizable Jewish population and a close proximity to Jerusalem, and thus had at least an understanding of that faith that was described in the Old Testament. Now in the spring of A.D. 49, Paul was planning another, a second missionary journey, and he wanted to revisit the churches that he had begun, but he also wanted to extend the territory in which Christian churches were to be found. Now, during this trip, something unexpected happened. Luke records it in Acts 16, 9 and 10. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, put this in terms that we understand today. That would mean that Paul would leave Turkey, cross the Aegean Sea, and land in Greece. That would mean that the gospel of Jesus Christ would reach into Greece and then on into Europe. Now, if you know your New Testament well, you will know that this resulted in Paul preaching the gospel in the Greek cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, and then in Athens. These are all prominent Greek cities, but for our purposes, we're going to concentrate on the city of Corinth. Paul arrived there in the fall of AD 50. The historical situation at that time worked to Paul's advantage. Because the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome, some of them had arrived in Corinth. Furthermore, there was a historic Jewish community there, and so, as was Paul's custom, whenever he was at a synagogue, his first step was to get an arrangement in which he would be permitted to speak there on a Sabbath. Apparently, he was asked to return, and so every single Sabbath, he would open the Old Testament scriptures and begin to reason with them that the Christ really was Jesus. And at some point in time, there's a reaction, and they threw him out of the synagogue. But this not before he was already being listened to by both Jews and Greeks, and so he was invited to the house of a Greek God-fearer, a Greek man who loved the God of Israel but had not converted to Judaism. His name was Titius Justus, and he had a very large home suitable for a large gathering, and it was located right next to the synagogue. And from that place of meeting, stuff started happening. The synagogue ruler, a man named Crispus, apparently would come over and hear Paul preach in the home of Titius Justus. And after a time, he converted, believed in Jesus. He and his entire household were baptized. But that was not the end of the story. Paul's activities created a stir in that city, and a great many Gentiles were also attracted, and soon a congregation was growing made up of Jews and Greeks. Place was flourishing, and Paul stayed in that city for a year and a half with both wonderful results and a fair bit of controversy as well. But in the end, the Church of Jesus in Corinth was to find out that there was a great deal to be learned about being a Christian in a pagan culture. Paul entered another world offering the unchanging, life-changing message of Jesus, a message that would confront a pagan culture. Well, Dr. Neufeld continues with us in just a moment. There's a new challenge of reaching Canadian young adults for the gospel. A recent poll records that roughly 20% of young people in Canada are public about their faith, 30% are private in their beliefs, 30% are skeptical, and 20% are confident in their atheism. 
You know, it's encouraging to hear that roughly 80% aren't necessarily opposed to the supernatural. However, our culture is also deeming confusion as a virtue and clarity as a sin. So the very general climate of Canadian young adults today is that the majority are open to spirituality, but cautious of certainty. That's the challenge. And at In Doubt, a purely young adult ministry, we take it on by providing podcasts, articles, Bible studies, and live events that engage the tough topics of our day and impact this generation with the beautiful message and power of the gospel. Take a look for yourself at indoubt.ca. The book of Corinthians is in some ways a very unique book. I mean, read the book of Romans and it becomes very clear that the entire book has a theme. The theme is the full description of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Read Galatians and you'll soon realize the book deals with the law and the gospel. Philippians is about the partnership in the gospel. I think you get the point. Most New Testament books have a major theme. But 1 Corinthians doesn't seem to have one overarching theme. One hardly begins reading the book when one gets the feeling that the entire book is given to correcting a series of problems in one local church. Chapter 1, verse 11 says, It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Go on to chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. Or chapter 11, 20 to 21, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Or chapter 15, verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? See, it's pretty easy to see from those few verses that much in this book is taken to correcting abuses, identifying false teaching, encouraging love for one another where that was missing, helping to know how to navigate the tricky situation of the purchase of meat that was sacrificed to pagan idols, and so forth. After all, this church was trying to understand what it meant to be a follower of Jesus in a pagan world. So, in a sense, the entire book is countercultural. Most of the problems that were felt in Corinth were the direct result of people simply assuming cultural values that now had to be changed in Christ. But in chapters 5 to 7, we see how significant was the distance between the Christian value base and that of the wider Corinthian culture. In those three chapters, we will encounter incest, corporate responsibility for our sexual actions, questions about to what extent we can hold a fellow believer responsible for immoral behavior, when can Christians appeal to secular law courts, the Christian view of the human body, the biblical view of marriage, the biblical view of divorce, the biblical view of living life as an unmarried single, understanding how your marital status and your financial status fits with Christian ideals, and a host of questions regarding marriage. In short, these three chapters seem to deal with some of the most significant personal, and difficult matters when it comes to the Christian faith. And as we work our way through this text, we will see how wide is the gulf between the culture in which we live and the demands of the gospel. But underlying all of this is a presumption that I fear we might not see because of North American culture. See, one of the great 
cultural assumptions that we all grow up with is that all of us function as individuals who are given a right to exercise our free choice. And that's the key. We have a strongly held belief that we not only function as individuals, but that ultimately we are not held to account by a group. And that cultural value has found its way deeply into the church. You know, I recently had a conversation with a stranger sitting at an airport awaiting a flight. He had, in our conversation, identified himself as a Christian. I asked him where he fellowshiped, what church he belonged to, which denomination, uh, what role he played there, and there was some hesitation. And then he told me, well, I don't need to go to church every Sunday. You know, the life of Christ is something that happens on the inside. You know, but in truth, he was not telling me about the change Christ has made inside of him. Indeed, he offered no examples at all. What he was telling me was that he could practice the Christian faith without a Christian community and without an accountability structure. He believed in an individualistic Christian faith. See, one thing we will instantly notice as we read 1 Corinthians 5-7 to is that this passage simply assumes that all Christians are accountable to a local church. That's why we find that when a man was sleeping with his stepmother, Paul calls for the entire church to mourn and then immediately to confront that man. That's what churches do. And then we move very quickly from that to a discussion of excommunication with the idea that the worst thing that could ever happen to any Christian is to be thrown out of his fellowship. Indeed, there is here a detailed process of how excommunication happens and what it means for a believer. See, all of that brings us to what those who are living in North America might miss because of our cultural values. According to 1 Corinthians, and for that matter, according to the rest of the Bible, the idea that the Christian faith is only a relationship to Jesus without a relationship to the church is entirely foreign. Consider what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 14 to 17. Now, before I read that text, you will immediately notice how theologically rich it is and how just a few verses could become the subject of a lengthy exposition. But with all the wealth of information in those few short verses, don't lose the main point. Well, let me read it. For he himself, that is Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now the two that Paul is speaking about in that passage are Jews and Gentiles. The Jews have their own unique culture, and the Gentiles have a number of different and diverse cultures. But something of what Christ did broke down the barrier between those two cultures, and in place of animosity, a new culture, a, a new people group arose. The church, made up of Jews and Gentiles, and people of every race and language and, and tongue, have now received a new identity, indeed a new culture or a new people group have arisen from the message of the cross. Now contrast that to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. There he writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now, translators have often puzzled as to how to translate that passage. See, on the one hand, the actual grammar seems to be somewhat cumbersome. It seems to mix two images, that is, being baptized into the Holy Spirit and then also being baptized into the body of Christ. But in truth, those two images are to be combined. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is not to be thought of as separate from the baptism into a local church, which is the people of God. Now, why is that so? Well, according to 1 Corinthians 12, there are two reasons for that. The first is that we actually now belong to each other. So much of the New Testament expresses the fact that if we are in Christ, then we must love one another. Furthermore, according to 1 Corinthians 12, we find out very quickly that we need one another, that none of us has all the gifts that are required to live out the life of Christ by ourselves. Again, this idea is, is reinforced by the rest of the New Testament. Every single New Testament book is addressed to a church and not to an individual. And even books like 1 Timothy that seem to be addressed to an individual are in fact instructions to a pastor as to how to lead his local church. And so we come back to the idea of culture. It was always God's intention that when creating the church, that God would create a unique culture based on values, morality, ways of doing things that are decidedly different from the culture around us. We reflect a culture that is based upon Christ and his word, the Bible. In some ways, becoming a Christian ought to feel like moving from the culture of Canada to Ethiopia. Now, I'm using Ethiopia as an example. I could have said Mali or Vietnam or Chile or any other country in the world whose customs and practices and values are different from our own. You ought to be in culture shock when you become a Christian. Furthermore, since the Church of Jesus Christ is found in countries all around the world, the Church should, in one sense, look not just different from all the cultures in the world, but every Church, no matter where it's found, ought to look the same way. That doesn't mean that we eat the same food and so forth. I rather mean we value the same things. And that's what 1 Corinthians 5-7 to is all about. The church is the gospel alternative to the nations of the world wherever we find them. So if you want to know how this works, join me as we discover 1 Corinthians 5-7 to and discover the culture of the gospel. John, thanks so much for your message today. You know, I hear a lot from people that we're the church, that is, is supposed to be counter-cultural. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, I don't think that I am. I mean, yes, because being biblical, we have developed a kind of a culture based on the life of Christ that makes us markedly different than our culture around us. But I mean, we're not trying to be countercultural just by, you know, poking people in the eye or trying to start arguments or, you know, or trying to do some kind of a thing. I mean, what we're really all about is, is preaching the cross of Jesus. But as we live out our Christian lives, we will find out that the more faithful that we are in any culture, we will be at odds with the culture around us. So, yes, we are countercultural, 
but it's not our goal. Our goal is to live out the life of Christ. And that I would make as my appeal to everyone that's listening. Learn to be obedient to Christ in all things. Make that your goal. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.